Well, it's a privilege to be back at College Park. I, uh, I think this is my third trip here, and every time I come, there are more people in a bigger building. I can hardly wait to see what happens the next time I show up. It's been good to renew uh, friendship and fellowship, some, some, in some cases, with former students, and, uh, and uh, to talk with Joe again and to sense the heartbeat of this ministry. Turn in your Bibles, please, or turn on your Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 37. Jeremiah 37, 38, 39. Now, for many of us, we haven't read Jeremiah recently, so it's important to take time in the service to read the large chunk to make sure we're all on the same page. Um, I will try to fill in a little bit of background for those who have not been here over the last two or three days so that you see the context of what we're actually reading. I'm going to begin at chapter 37, verse 1. Zedekiah, son of Josiah, was made king of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He reigned in place of Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim. Now, a bit of background already is necessary. The northern tribes of Israel had been taken off into captivity under the Assyrian regional superpower about a century and a half earlier. This was God's judgment for blatant, consistent, degenerating corruption and idolatry. The southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, centered in the capital city of Jerusalem, under the Davidic king, took a little longer to slink down into the similar sorts of corruption and idolatry. But the last good king had been Josiah, about four back. And now God had threatened, he had warned the people, he had demanded repentance, see none of it, and now finally the last chapter is being played out. At the time when the Assyrians took power, they were the regional superpower to the north, but they were taken over by the Babylonians. And so in the north were the, was the Babylonian Empire, and in the south was the Egyptian Empire, with little Judah and Jerusalem squashed between the two in no man's land. And instead of trusting God and listening to the word of God and listening to the prophets, instead they were playing power politics and trying to pretend they were really important while they were still wallowing in their own idolatry and iniquity. Eventually, after two or three cycles in which some people had been taken off into captivity already, including Ezekiel, who by this time was already in Babylon, the mighty Babylonian army besieged Jerusalem. And the Egyptians came up and... Some people thought that maybe this would be their salvation. But Jeremiah kept saying, no, that's not going to happen. There's going to be judgment here in any case. So some of the Babylonian contingents chased the Egyptians back. And, and, and then finally the, the siege set in for real. And the man who was the king in Jerusalem at the time was this Zedekiah. He was there as the king only because Nebuchadnezzar, the regional super monarch, had, had installed him. Jerusalem was such a petty little vassal state at this point, they couldn't even choose their own kings. So that's what is meant when we read that Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, was made king of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He reigned in place of Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim. Neither he nor his attendants nor the people of the land paid any attention to the words the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah, however, sent Jehuchel, son of Shelemiah, with the priest Zephaniah, son of Maasiah, to Jeremiah the prophet with this message. Please pray to the Lord our God for us. Now, Jeremiah was free to come and go among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. Pharaoh's army had marched out of Egypt, and when the Babylonians who were besieging Jerusalem heard the report about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of me, Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, will go back to its own lands, to Egypt. Then the Babylonians will return and attack this city, they will capture it and burn it down. This is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourselves thinking the Babylonians will surely leave us. They will not. 
Even if you were to defeat the entire Babylonian army that is attacking you and only wounded men were left in their tents, they would come out and burn this city down. After the Babylonian army had withdrawn from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah started to leave the city to go to the territory of Benjamin to get his share of the property among the people there. But when he reached the Benjamin gate, the captain of the guard, whose name was Elijah, son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah, arrested him and said, You are deserting to the Babylonians. That's not true, Jeremiah said. I am not deserting to the Babylonians. But Elijah would not listen to him. Instead, he arrested Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. They were angry with Jeremiah and had him beaten and imprisoned in the house of Jonathan the secretary, which they had made into a prison. Jeremiah was put into a vaulted cell in a dungeon where he remained a long time. Then King Zedekiah sent for him and had him brought to the palace where he asked him privately, Is there any word from the Lord? Yes, Jeremiah replied. You will be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon. Then Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, What crime have I committed against you or your attendants or this people that you have put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you, The king of Babylon will not attack you or this land? But now, my lord, the king, please listen. Let me bring my petition before you. Do not send me back to the house of Jonathan the secretary, or I will die there. King Zedekiah then gave orders for Jeremiah to be placed in the courtyard of the guard and given a loaf of bread from the street of the bakers each day until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. Shephatiah, son of Matan, Gedaliah, son of Pashur, Jehuchel, son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, son of Malchijah, heard what Jeremiah was telling all the people when he said, This is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives. They will live. And this is what the Lord says. This city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon, who will capture it. Then the official said to the king, This man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in this city, as well as all the people, by the things he is saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. He is in your hands, King Zedekiah answered. The king can do nothing to oppose you. So they took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of Melchijah, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. But Ebed-Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. While the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went out of the palace and said to him, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there is no longer any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Cushite, Take thirty men from here with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to a room under the treasury in the palace. He took some old rags and worn-out clothes from there and put them down with ropes to Jeremiah in the cistern. Ebed-Melech the Cushite said to Jeremiah, Put these old rags and worn-out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. Jeremiah did so, and they pulled him up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. Then King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and had him brought to the third entrance to the temple of the Lord. I'm going to ask you something, the king said to Jeremiah. Do not hide anything from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I give you an answer, will you not kill me? Even if I did give you counsel, you would not listen to me. But King Zedekiah swore his oath secretly to Jeremiah. 
As surely as the Lord lives who has given us breath, I will neither kill you nor hand you over to those who want to kill you. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, This is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. If you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared and this city will not be burned down. You and your family will live. But if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians and they will burn it down. You yourself will not escape from them. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have gone over to the Babylonians, for the Babylonians may hand me over to them and they will mistreat me. They will not hand you over, Jeremiah replied. Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you. Then it will go well with you and your life will be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, this is what the Lord has revealed to me. All the women left in the palace of the king of Judah will be brought out to the officials of the king of Babylon. Those women will say to you, they misled you and overcame you. Those trusted friends of yours, your feet are sunk in the mud, your friends have deserted you. All your wives and children will be brought out to the Babylonians. You yourself will not escape from their hands, but will be captured by the king of Babylon, and this city will be burned down. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Do not let anyone know about this conversation, or you may die. If the officials hear that I talked with you, and they come to you and say, Tell us what you said to the king and what the king said to you. Do not hide it from us, or we will kill you. Then tell them, I was pleading with the king not to send me back to Jonathan's house to die there. All the officials did come to Jeremiah and question him, and he told them everything the king had ordered him to say. So they said no more to him, for no one had heard his conversation with the king. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard until the day Jerusalem was captured. This is how Jerusalem was taken. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, 18 or 20 months later, of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. Nergal Sharizer of Samgar Nebo Sarsekim, a chief officer, Nergal Sharizar, a high official, and all the other officials of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden, through the gate, between the two walls, and headed toward the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamat, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, carried into exile to Babylon the people who remained in the city, along with those who had gone over to him and the rest of the people. But Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, left behind in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing. And at that time he gave them vineyards and fields. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. So Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, a chief official, Nergal Sharizar, a high official, and all the other officers of the king of Babylon, sent and had Jeremiah taken out of the courtyard of the guard. They turned him over to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to take him back to his home. So he remained among his own people. This is the word of the Lord. So what we have in this last session of the conference 
is a narrative block, Jeremiah 37 to 39. In part, it relates the fall of Jerusalem. But at the same time, it relates the failure of the king. This block of narrative is structured by three private interviews between Zedekiah on the one hand and Jeremiah on the other. And interspersed with these interviews are the events that happen, the things that befall Jeremiah himself, his beatings, his imprisonment, the threats on his life, and so forth. What I propose to do this morning is to run through the narrative quickly, to see the the panels, the blocks, the way the story flows, to make sure we're all on the same page, since not all of us have been at the conference. And for those who have been at the conference, I'll draw attention to some of the themes that we've been following all the way through the book. But then I'll spend most of my time at the end with some concluding lessons from these chapters and from the book as a whole, the way God speaks to us through the prophecy of Jeremiah into our lives in the 21st century. So, the drama itself. Six panels. Number one. Chapter 37, verses 1 to 10. The first interview with King Zedekiah. Sometimes people look to God for help in difficult times without really being committed to God, without loving Him, without wanting to obey Him. They just want God to help them. They have their own agenda. Now they want God to be on side, as it were. So this King Zedekiah, of whom the text says that neither he nor his attendants nor the people of the land paid any attention to the words of the Lord, verse 2, nevertheless, this King Zedekiah sends messengers to fetch Jeremiah to ask him, Please pray to the Lord our God for us. I mean, can't do any harm to ask, you know? Maybe the God who spared Jerusalem in the past will do it again. But just because these pious words are articulated doesn't mean the heart of the king or of his court is with God. And then second panel. The officials arrest and beat Jeremiah. Chapter 37, verses 11 to 16. So what happened was, as Pharaoh Hophra from Egypt sent troops up, maybe intending to bring some relief to the siege at Jerusalem, some of the contingents of Nebuchadnezzar's army go down to meet them. It turns out that Egypt at this point just doesn't have the troops, it doesn't have the power, it doesn't have the military might. They see what the threat is, they, they retreat back to their homeland. But during this interim period, when there were not so many Babylonians besieging Jerusalem, then during that time, Jeremiah wants to step out the city and go back to his home in Benjamin, in Anathoth, to get some of his stuff, what we're not told. Probably the guards thought that Jeremiah was deserting because he had been telling the people to leave while the going was good. He had kept saying, the word of the Lord is this city is going to fall, and if you're here when it falls, you will die. You really should leave. Now, and you should go over to the Babylonians. And so they thought that he was a traitor himself, and they imprisoned him in an underground dungeon in a scribe's former house, the house of Jonathan. Then the second interview with King Zedekiah, number 3, chapter 37, verses 17 to 21. It's a personal meeting this time, before it was through messengers. Here's a 32-year-old king. By this time, Jeremiah is about 60. He'd started preaching when he was still in his teens. And quite frankly, Zedekiah this time is not just asking for prayer. He wants an answer. What's the outcome going to be? Now, all along, Zedekiah had listened to false prophets, as had his father and his uncle. He, all along, he had, he, he, he'd been taking bad advice. And when, when Jeremiah gave the word of the Lord, he, he really wasn't ready to listen to it. But there's a niggle there. He, he, he does realize that, that Jeremiah has spoken a lot of truth. Some of the false prophets had said that Babylon would never come to Jerusalem. And here, here the Babylonian army is. So he asks him privately, is there any word from the Lord? But it's asked almost as if this is... This is your magic shtick. We have our magic shtick over here, and this is your magic shtick. What does your magic shtick say? Yes, Jeremiah replied, you will be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon. That's it for the exchange. 
Except that Jeremiah takes this opportunity while he's in the king's presence to put in his own private petition. What crime have I committed against you or your attendants or this people that you put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you the king of Babylon will not attack you or, uh, you or this land? Why are you picking on me? I've told you the truth. The events have me vindicated. Don't send me back to the dungeon. I will die there. So King Zedekiah, we're told, gave orders for Jeremiah to be placed in the courtyard of the guard and given a loaf of bread from the street of the bakers each day until the bread in the city was gone probably in chains with some freedom to roam about the courtyard. I don't, I don't know what the arrangements were. He couldn't leave the courtyard, but that's where he was. But each day given a loaf of bread. You, you see, military powers in those days that wanted to take walled cities would set up a siege. They'd put soldiers all around, tight enough, enough soldiers, tight enough that people couldn't get in or out or bring food in or take food out. And eventually a city would starve to death. A big city would have some of its own food supplies. It could grow some, but, but at the end of the day, gradually, gradually, the city would be weaker and weaker and weaker. And meanwhile, the outside troops would be building up siege ramps and the like, hoping eventually to go over the wall and take the city. That's why siege ramps and, and starvation plans could, could, could mean that a city was besieged for a year, two years, even seven years before the city was finally taken. In this case, it turned out to be about 18 or 20 months. So as long as food was still available, Jeremiah was to get his loaf of bread from the city street where the bakers did their work. That's what the king decreed. Then in the fourth place, the officials arranged to kill Jeremiah. And that's because, chapter 38, verses 1 to 13, he's still giving the same message to the people. He is insisting the city is going to fall. They should leave. They, they should say, I surrender and, and go over to the Babylonians. They, 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 should, they should abandon the city. That's the only way they're going to live. That's what God himself predicted. God will speak the truth. So this time, this time they go to the king and they say, this man is dangerous. He's undermining the morale of the soldiers. And King Zedekiah is weak. Chapter 38, verse 5. He, he's not principled at all. He simply says, he is in your hands. The king can do nothing to oppose you. He listens to this group. He listens to that group. He listens to the false prophets. He listens to Jeremiah. And he, he plays around. I, I don't want to get into trouble here. You, you, you do what you want. So they took Jeremiah, we're told, and put him into the cistern of Melchijah. But the important thing to note is that Melchijah is one of the king's own sons. The royal family is ridden with inconsistent, ridden with in, riddled with inconsistency. And this cistern, it has no water, but it's muck, mud. Jeremiah sinks into it. It's not clear whether he'd ultimately drown there, swallowed up in the mud, or starve to death. But Ebed Melech who's a Kushite, that is, he's from southern Egypt, one of the regional superpowers that, that uh, uh, is, is in conflict to some extent with Babylon. He works in the royal palace. We don't know anything more about him. But he believes the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. So he approaches the king and says, you know, this is what happened indirectly because of your orders. Is this what you really want? They're handling Jeremiah very badly. And so the king changes his mind again and tells him to get 30 men together and haul him out of there. And so the narrative proceeds with rags and ropes and claws and coats wrapping up the ropes to get under, under Jeremiah's armpits. And gradually these 30 men haul him out of there and he's put back in the courtyard. Then the third interview with King Zedekiah, chapter 38, verses 14 to 28. This is the fifth panel. This one's private. It's not arranged at the palace. Too many people could see what's going on. It's in the third door of the temple, whatever that is. But it's some private place where nobody can listen in. There are similar questions. I adjure you. Tell me the truth. I want to know what you think. I'm going to ask you something. Don't hide anything from me. By this time, Jeremiah is a bit suspicious about how he should answer. If I do tell you the truth, you, you, you'll end up killing me. 
Or alternatively, you'll sell me out to your own son and his gang. Jeremiah swore this oath. As surely as the Lord lives who has given us breath, I will neither kill you nor hand you over to those who want to kill you. So Jeremiah tells him the truth. The truth is the city is going to fall. But Zedekiah still has a choice to make. The city is going to fall. God's judgment is now inevitable. It's a done deal. There are no chances for turning back. Earlier, there had been ministry from Zedekiah, from, from Jeremiah, which said, in effect, if there was repentance, the, the, the whole thing could be called off. But now the city is going to fall. That's, that's a done deal. The question is, will you yourself survive it? The city is going to fall, but will it get burned down? If you surrender and do what God says, if you surrender under a white flag, the city will be spared and you and your family will live. But if you try to play this one out, you will die and the city will be utterly destroyed. Zedekiah says, yeah, but I'm afraid that if, if, if I do that, the people who disagree with me will be after me. Do, do, do you know? And besides, if, if I surrender, the Jews who have already surrendered, they might be mad at me too. I could get into trouble. I might get beaten up over this. Jeremiah replies, obey the Lord by doing what I tell you. Then it will go well with you and your life will be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, this is what the Lord has revealed to me. All the women left in the palace of the king of Judah will be brought out and they'll be chanting at your downfall. Because in those days what happened was the royal court women and the wives and the women of the royal family were immediately taken out and raped by the invading soldiers. That's what's going to happen to your family. Then the fall of Jerusalem, the last panel, chapter 39. At the last minute, the king and some of his remaining troops try to sneak out through an underground passage. You can still see the passage to this day, archaeologically. They head down to the Arabah. That's the low land that runs from Galilee in the north down to the Dead Sea and farther south. They try to get there. It's about 17 miles downhill to, Jer to, to Jericho. And there the troops catch up with him. They transport him to Hibla, the headquarters of uh, Nebuchadnezzar at the time. And there in Hibla, the high officials and Zedekiah's own sons are killed. One after the other. Before his eyes including Malchijah, who had put Jeremiah in the pit. And then after Zedekiah has seen his own family killed, they come to him and pop out his eyes. So it's the last thing he ever sees. So what are we to learn from this? What are we to learn from this as it stands in sequence with all of the other passages in Jeremiah that uh, we've been looking at the last two or three days? Three things. Number one, there is nothing more tragic, more damning than a refusal to listen attentively, faithfully, and obediently to the word of God. Nothing. It's plain even from this passage, all the repeated warnings. But it's even more plain when you look through the book as a whole. Jeremiah, despite the fact that he is so massively unbelieved, is described as a, as a man with a mouth full of fire. But there are times in cultures when people don't want to listen to the word of God. It's the truth itself that might actually blind people. Their minds are actually in another direction. We saw earlier in the series that in John chapter 8, verse 45, it is said of Jesus, because he speaks the truth, therefore people do not believe. Because sometimes the truth itself is so unpalatable that the articulation and proclamation of the truth is precisely what ensures unbelief. So what are your options? Speak unbelief? Speak untruth? In this case, we've got a king who is not so much adamantly opposed to the word of God, 
as a waffler. He wants to hear what Jeremiah has to say, but he doesn't do anything about it. He wants just enough spirituality to act privately and pull in a counselor or two and seek out what God might have to say, but then he's going to go his own independent way in any case. Just as there are people today who go to church and want a blessing or two and so on. But that doesn't mean they've really bowed to the Lordship of Christ. In fact, this is not simply a theme in Jeremiah. It's a theme throughout the Bible. It's worth remembering the words that Moses writes found in Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is close to a millennium earlier where Moses has led the people of God out of slavery in Egypt, but they are not yet into the promised land. Moses foresees that a time is coming. It would come about four centuries later. He foresees a time when ultimately the people would have a king. And so, inspired by God, Moses gives instructions about what that king and all successive kings should do. When a king comes to the throne, what should he do? We read, Deuteronomy 17, 14, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He should be a king after God's own heart. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Read tanks. Or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. That is, to make the kinds of allegiances and treaties that compromise your covenant status with the regional superpowers. You are not to go that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray, which is exactly what Solomon did. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold, putting himself in a separate sphere that makes him ultimately live above the law. The love of money is the cause of all kinds of evil. No, no, no. What's he supposed to do? When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So he becomes king. What's he supposed to do first? Audit the books of his predecessor? Nope. Point the Secretary of State? Flesh out his cabinet? Nope. Call in the military commanders? Make sure he's in good relationships with the military, since they're the only ones that have the power to overthrow him? Nope. What's the first thing he's supposed to do? Take out his quill pen. Get a copy of the book of the law. Now, whether that's Deuteronomy or even the whole Pentateuch, I have no idea. But it's a big chunk. Even if it's Deuteronomy, it's quite a lot. He's supposed to get a copy from the priests. They looked after the scriptures. After all, there were no printing presses in those days. The average Joe didn't have his own copy of the Bible. So he's to go to the priest and get a copy and make a copy for himself. Not give it to a secretary. Not download it from the cloud onto his hard drive without it passing through anybody's brain. No, no. He's to copy it out longhand in Hebrew. And he's to do it so carefully that his copy becomes his reading copy. Can't be done so hastily. He can't even read the thing. No, it's supposed to be his reading copy, we're told, every day. In other words, he's supposed to have his devotions from the Word of God every day. Every day. So as to think God's thoughts after him. He is to do this in order to revere the Word of God, the text says. And in order that he will not turn to the left or to the right away from the Word of God. And in order that he won't think himself better than other people. And in order that he won't be seduced by other passing things. That's his first obligation. His first responsibility. And that's not rare in scripture. Wouldn't be too long before Moses himself dies. And his successor is Joshua. 
And what Joshua is told in the first chapter of the book that bears his name is, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, for then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success. Or consider what Psalm 1 says. Psalm 1, which gives us a, a contrast between a just person and an unjust person, between a righteous person and an unrighteous person. The just person is described negatively in verse 1. What the righteous person is not like. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Well, to stand in the way of sinners needs a bit of explaining. You might think it's a jolly good idea to stand in the way of sinners. But in English, to stand in somebody's way means to block them. You might think of Robin Hood and Little John on the bridge. They stand in each other's way and one of them ends in the river. But to stand in someone's way in Hebrew means to do what they do, to, to wear their moccasins, to be what they are themselves, to do what they do to act the way they act. So you're not to listen to the counsel of the wicked or to stand in their way. That is to act like them or to sit in the seat of mockers looking down your long self-righteous nose at those stupid, ridiculous, right-wing, idiotic, bigoted Christians. That's what you're not supposed to do. And what are you supposed to do? But his delight will be in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. His mind is so full of Scripture that that's what he thinks about. He meditates on it. He reflects on it. He turns it over in his mind. It's not that he, he has had his devotions in the morning some, somewhere between sipping his orange juice and pulling on his socks and then never gives it a moment thought all day. But he meditates on it day and night, the text says. You come up to a stop sign and you have a 45 seconds before the light shifts and your mind goes somewhere or other, it just sort of gravitates back to what you've been reading in Scripture recently. And you wake up in the middle of the night and wh wh where does your half-life go between waking and sleep? Well, it just goes back to Scripture and you're meditating on it and turning it over in your mind day and night. That's what you think about because that's what you put into your mind in the first place. Do you, do you see? Or Jesus who says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The people of Israel instructed in Deuteronomy chapter 8, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, quoted by Jesus himself in his temptation in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Text after text after text after text. And then on the night that he is betrayed, Jesus prays for his disciples, for his own followers. He prays for you and me. And he says, John 17, Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. There is nothing more tragic, more ridiculous, more dangerous than to ignore the word of God. Conversely, there's nothing more important than to flood our minds with it. Nothing. Number two. God is amazingly long-suffering. He is patient, slow to anger, but judgment comes in the end. God is amazingly long-suffering. He is patient, slow to anger, but judgment comes in the end. For now, we're studying not only chapters 37 to 39. We're studying chapters 37 to 39 after working through the rest of the book. I mentioned that Jeremiah was in his teens when he began to preach. He's now approaching 60. Four decades of ministry. Warnings. Promises that God would forgive them and heal the land if they would repent. And still God put off judgment. One king replaced by another king. That king replaced by another king. That king replaced by another king. Until you come to Zedekiah. God is amazingly long-suffering. And actually, the roots of the threatened judgment go back several kings before that to Hezekiah when there was threat from God to bring in justice. When corruption was prevalent in the land, when idolatry was everywhere, when the, the, there was brokenness to the covenant, God threatened judgment and still he put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off. But in the end, judgment comes. 
Now, I know that many people view the difference between the portrait of God in the Old Testament and the portrait of God in the New Testament along these sorts of lines. In the Old Testament, God is a bit short-tempered, lots of depictions of his wrath, and you can end up, as you end here, with a city under siege, people starving to death, genocide, rape and pillage, war, judgment. And then, mercifully, you turn to the New Testament and this gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child, everything's sweetness and light. Boy, I'm sure glad I'm a New Testament believer rather than an Old Testament believer, aren't you? Isn't that what a lot of us think? We might not be so crass as to put it quite that way, but deep down we have a suspicion that God as he presents himself in the Old Testament is a bit of a nasty blighter. And in the New Testament, it's all sweetness and light. I cannot tell you forcefully enough how mistaken that contrast is. After all, in the Old Testament, we are told again and again that the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He does not always try. He's the God who calls out, turn, turn, why will you die? The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He remembers their frame. He knows that they are dust. Those are all Old Testament texts. And the whole narrative here is that God delays and delays and delays before judgment finally comes. So the Old Testament pictures God as a God of mercy and compassion, but judgment comes. And in the New Testament, oh yes, God is a God of mercy and love. There's no doubt about that. But the New Testament talks far more clearly and directly than the Old about hell. And the New Testament figure who introduces most of the depictions of hell is Jesus. Moreover, it's not just Jesus, but there is text after text with depictions of hell that would curl your hair. Here's Revelation 14. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the wine press outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. These ancient wine presses were huge stone vats into which the grapes were thrown. And the servant girls kicked off their sandals and picked up their skirts and went in there and started tramping down the grapes. And then the juices would flow out of holes at the bottom of the vat down stone channels to be collected in underground stone jars. And gradually then, as these jars filled up, they were replaced with more jars, and out of this grape juice then, they started making their wine. But now this image is picked up so that people are thrown into the great winepress of God's wrath, and they are trampled underfoot until their blood rises to the height of a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. Now, I know it's imagery. But then what is the reality? You tell me with a straight face that the God of the New Testament is a softer kind of God. I'll tell you why we think he is a softer kind of God. It's because most of us are more frightened by pestilence and war we are more frightened by disease and physical calamity than we are of hell. In other words, it's our unbelief that makes us think that the God of the New Testament is a softer God. No, it's not that when you move from the Old Testament to the New, you move from a hard God to a soft God. The reality is a little different. As you move from the Old Covenant to the New, from the Old Testament to the New, the pictures of God's love are truly ratcheted up. 
The depictions of God's forbearance and mercy in the Old Testament are wonderful. But nothing is more wonderful than the cross. Where the eternal Son of God bears our sin in his own body on the tree. Oh, this love is spectacular. Those who spit on his face. Those who hate him. Those who revile him. His own image bearers. His own creation. Actually now being saved from the wrath they deserve by the one who ultimately made them. The depictions of God's love are wonderful. So as you move from the old covenant to the new, there is a ratcheting up of the pictures of God's love. But as you move from the old covenant to the new, so there's a ratcheting up of the pictures of God's justice and wrath. There's a ratcheting up of both of them. Judgment comes at the end. People will give an account before God. There is no escaping it. And so as you pummel through Scripture, the depictions of God's love become clearer and clearer. The depictions of God's wrath become clearer and clearer. The depictions of God's love and forbearing and, and His tolerance, waiting, waiting for people to repent. And the depictions of God's threatening wrath and depictions of it in things like the destruction of Jerusalem become clearer. And they pummel through Scripture and they pummel through Scripture and they pummel through Scripture until finally they clash. And we call that place Golgotha. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Flee from the wrath to come. Turn, turn, why will you die? The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is amazingly long-suffering. He is patient, slow to anger. But judgment comes in the end. Finally, judgment is not the last word. Jeremiah points to Christ. For those who have followed this series, there are glimpses of hope scattered throughout the book. Nowhere stronger, perhaps, than in Jeremiah 31, which we looked at yesterday afternoon, the promise of the new covenant. And with the new covenant, transformation of individuals, the law of God written on their heart and mind, God being their God, they being his people. And ultimately, this is fulfilled not only in the new covenant that Jesus establishes in his own blood, but ultimately that is fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness where there is no more death or sin or discord ever, ever again. And with it, promises to the nations, not just for Israel, promises to the nations where the people of God are gathered together under the lordship of Christ. Indeed, in some ways, Jeremiah himself points ahead. Here is someone who faithfully gives God's word in hard times, is disbelieved and suffers. He's a weeping prophet. And Jesus himself, the ultimate prophet of God, he gives God's word. He is God's word. He is widely disbelieved and he suffers. But there is a difference. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah, the guilty finally die. And Jeremiah himself is vindicated. But in Jesus, the innocent one is put to death precisely so that the guilty might be vindicated. Small wonder then that the Bible runs through to insist on the Lordship of Christ and all of our vaunted independence and insistence on our authenticity being grounded and being the captain of our own soul is merely another form of idolatry. Most of us, when we were children, I'm sure were exposed to the poem by William Henley, Invictus, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. 
In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds me and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Small wonder judgment finally comes. And to that the Christian Dorothy Day replied, Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him, and his the aid, that, spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Let us pray. Grant to us, merciful God, we pray, a renewed trembling before your most holy word, a hunger to know it, to love it, to cherish it, to believe it, to obey it, remembering that you are the one who said, to these will I look, those who are humble and of a contrite spirit and who tremble at my word. Grant us such a grasp of the sweep of redemptive history that while we delight in your grace, we do not presume to think that judgment is avoidable, but to cast our hope for this life and the life to come on Christ himself, who bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And for those, Lord God, who are here this morning, for whom this still seems strange and alien. Will you not work in them even now by your Spirit, that they may see your, their sin and your Son and cry out to you from the very wellsprings of their being, even now where they sit? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. For Jesus' sake. Amen.